Our sermon text this morning comes from John 12, verses 12 through 32. I'm entitled the sermon, The Hour Has Come for the Son of Man to be Glorified. Now this is a section where the Passover week is about to begin and Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. So three times in my life, I've heard the words my wife say, the hour has come when each of our three children was about to be born. You know, a woman is willing to experience birth pangs in order to experience a greater joy of knowing and holding her newborn child, as I'm sure Sarah Flood has been experiencing over the last couple of days. It's a wonderful and a beautiful thing. So when Jesus is saying the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he was ready to experience the birth pangs and the anguish of the cross in order to experience the greater joy of us becoming the children of God. So it's a beautiful thing as he experiences that, that joy, that's something that he's looking forward to. And so why was it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross? Jeremiah 17:9, which most of us probably know, gives a very direct answer to that. So he's experiencing this hour because the heart of man is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's quite a condemnation. So that's the way our hearts are before we know Christ. It's deceitful above all things. It's not just a little bit deceitful. It's totally deceitful. And of course, it's beyond cure. So in man's own strength, there's no, no cure. There's no hope. And that's our condition before God until he steps in, until the grace of God becomes active in our lives. So into the spiritual darkness of this world, God sent his son to overcome a heart that is like that. And he's done it for you and he's done it for me. And so this is the moment of the greatest demonstration of love and grace and sacrifice that's ever taken place in biblical history, in mankind's history. This is the hour. This is the time. And so as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, he knew that this hour was about to take place. He knew what he was gonna to have to face. And even as he faced it, he knew that the Son of Man was about to be glorified, for he was the only one who could save us. This wouldn't happen in any other way. It had to be through Jesus, the person of Jesus and his sacrifice. So please stand with me as we read the scripture. John 12, it's in your bulletin. Verses 12 through 32. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this message that uh, John brings to us and that the words that Jesus spoke that we see in this passage. And we pray that you would open our hearts that uh, are so busy thinking about worldly things even as we come in here this morning. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to pay attention, that you would help us to hear the things in this passage that you want us to hear individually as well as corporately. Oh Lord, we need you, even in listening, even in trying to keep our eyes upon you, even in obedience to your word, that we need great grace and mercy every single day. And we thank you that you provide that, even as we look to you to help us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, the two major points to the sermon this morning. Uh, the first point in our outline is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so we see as Jesus has this triumphal entry into Jerusalem that there are many people who are there gathered and they're crying out with hosannas and, and they've got fresh in their mind what has just happened, that, that the Messiah that they'd been expecting, it looks like Jesus is that person because the Messiah was going to be the person that raised people from the dead. That was like the final sign. And so this has just happened in Bethany. And so the word had gotten out, even though they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> the word had gotten out. And so they were gathering and, and looking forward to his entry. And they were there saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. 
So that was beautiful and wonderful. It must have been a great thing to witness as he's coming in, you know, mounted on this donkey and, and all these palm branches are being laid down. And so what they, what they were thinking was, wow, the oppressive rule of the Romans that we've been living under has been cruel and hard. That's going to be lifted now. All the different negative things that have been happening. And, and my goodness, it looks like in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that we have, that this is the king of Israel who's going to rule over the nations. So this is going to be glorious and great stuff. What a change this is going to bring to our lives. And so we're so excited about that. But what was Jesus thinking? So he heard these hosannas ringing in his ears and this big crowd telling him how great he was and the expectations on his life and what they were hoping for. Well, Hebrews 12.2 helps us out a little bit in what Jesus was thinking. It says, Jesus was the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So what was Jesus' joy? What was the joy as he was going to the cross? Well, Jesus knew that his sufferings were the birth pangs for all who would believe in him, who would become children of God. The joy of knowing that everybody in here who knows Christ, who has been born again, who has a new heart, that he would know you and hold you close and watch over you and be your Lord and your Savior. So that's what Jesus was thinking. What were the people thinking? They were thinking, oh my goodness, this is going to be a great change in our circumstances. We're going to gain the world. That's where their hearts and minds were directed. But Jesus came to give them a new heart. Just like he's given you a new heart this morning. He was more interested in what was in the inside. He was more interested in what holiness is rather than what the world could give in terms of happiness. So as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he knew that the crowds welcoming cries of Hosannas would soon change to cries of crucify him. And of course, if we'd been there, we'd be part of that crowd because we wouldn't have new hearts at that point either. Crucify him. See, Jesus said that he knew the hearts of man. He knew their hearts. And he wasn't there to gain their adulation or even their adoration. He knew that the purpose for him coming into this Passover week was going to be revealed as it is in Matthew 20, 17 through 19. It says, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to new life. So he knew what was about to happen. He was even teaching his disciples about this, and he had been. So since the Mount of Transfiguration, he'd been teaching. You see it three times where he's gone to his disciples. So at least three times we know he understood what he had to face, what it meant that he would have to go to the cross and suffer. And so he knew that he was about to be betrayed, to be condemned, to be crucified, to die, 
These are things that he knew, but he also knew he was going to be resurrected. This was not a secret to him, so he did it willingly. He did it with joy, it says, right? Facing all these horrible things that he's about to face. He did it with joy. And he also knew the condition of the hearts of his disciples. They haven't received new hearts yet. And he knew that one of them would betray him, Judas. He knew that for sure. And he knew that they didn't really believe many of the things that he'd been teaching them and what he had said. As he knew that all of his disciples would deny him. All of them. There wasn't one that did not deny him. And that he would experience the horrors of the cross totally and absolutely alone. You know what they do for prisoners that they want to deal with that are extremely bad? They put them in solitary confinement. So even the world struggles greatly when you're totally alone. And that's where Jesus was going to be because not only were these disciples going to deny him, but while he was on the cross at the part of his deepest suffering, Jesus says what? He says, God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father turns his face away. Utterly, completely, Jesus was alone. And he did it for the joy of knowing you. Can we let that kind of go down deep in our hearts? Can we marinate our hearts in this love and this, this amazing work and sacrifice that Jesus did for you and for me? Let it take hold. Let it not be a story in your head. May it go from here down to here and see how much you're loved and adored this morning by Christ. The second point in our outline tells us five reasons why Jesus said he was entering Jerusalem. We've got five reasons we're going to look at what Jesus had. So the first reason we find in verse 23. So these are all words of Christ, right? Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that's an interesting thing. What does it mean the hour has come? Well, from the time of Adam to the time of Jesus, thousands of years had passed. We don't know the exact amount of time, but it was certainly thousands of years. It was to know even going to the time of Abraham, that's like 2,400 years before Christ appeared. So we're talking thousands of years. So it's been a long time. And so God in his infinite mercy had been waiting for thousands of years and given man every opportunity just amazing mercies of turning to him. He's waiting upon them. And as he's waiting, then he'd given them the gift of the word of God. He'd given them the prophets. And he'd called them the chosen people of God. So he'd been waiting with all kinds of mercies, infinite mercy. So when you question God's mercy... Recall that, that for thousands of years, he was waiting for man to see if he could save himself. And of course, the answer is, no, he can't. 
So that's how the Old Testament closes. It had been 400 years from the time of the writing of Malachi to the coming of Christ. God had been silent for that period of time, but they had all these messages from the prophets, who most of whom had been, you know, abused and, and, and terribly uh, uh, abused in different ways. And so the problem was man was incapable of saving himself. And that's why Jesus had to come. Only Jesus could save us. There wasn't a way any man could improve the old heart and come to Christ and have a relationship with his heavenly father. It was only through Christ that this can happen. So what's, what we're seeing here then, there's a predetermined hour in history that was decided upon before the earth was even put into existence. That God had sent Jesus at just the right time and, and even Jesus doesn't know when he's gonna be sent back again, the scriptures tell us. And so this was all decided upon. It wasn't something where God was just reacting and saying, oh, what am I going to do now that Adam has disobeyed and, and man has fallen and can't save himself? He wasn't wringing his hands at all. This was all by the grace of God. This has all been predetermined. And so now the hour is at hand. The wait was over for Jesus to restore man's relationship with God which had been destroyed by Adam's disobedience. What a beautiful moment in time. And of course, no man knew what was going on, just Jesus. He's the only one that knew. And so Jesus is the second Adam, is the second representative, was going to be crucified, die, be buried, and rise from the dead and then ascend to the right hand of God, where he now sits in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? And so Jesus was about to be glorified by overcoming death and giving God's children his righteousness. Just think about that. You haven't earned it. You hear that often, but we need to hear it often. You haven't earned your righteousness. You haven't earned your status as children of God. You have done nothing to earn it. It's solely by the grace of God that you've received what Jesus has done. You did not ask Jesus to come. You did not ask Jesus to enter your heart until the grace of God first opened that heart. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit and giving you a new heart. What a beautiful love and sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And so he's going to be glorified because of this, for overcoming death. It was by faith that he trusted his father to raise him from the dead. So even going to the cross is a huge step of faith for Jesus. And so he did that, and he followed through. And so this is why he's being glorified. And so he passed. He passed the covenant of obedience that Adam had failed. And he received the wrath that God poured out upon him for your sins and for my sins. As he offered up his body as a sinless sacrifice unto God. 
So Jesus' second reason is in verse 24, where he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So there's not only salvation, but there's fruit bearing going on. Jesus knew that flesh and blood could not inherit the kingdom of God. He knew that. So his perishable human body must become imperishable. There's got to be change. His mortal human body must be made immortal. Jesus' human body had to die on the cross in order to atone for our sins, but his risen body is transformed. And it's a spiritual body as well as his normal body. We don't know exactly what all that looks like. That's part of God's mystery. One day we'll see. We'll understand. And so he had to be raised and transformed. And now he has a body that will never die. It's eternal. And so Jesus would produce much fruit after his death as he goes to the right hand of the Father and he pours out the Holy Spirit into the church. And it's the Holy Spirit's job then to carry on the work of, of Christ now throughout the world. We're his representatives. And so much more fruit. It's just not Jesus, one person, declaring the mighty, glorious teachings that he does. But now there's millions of people doing that all over the face of the earth. So there's much fruit that's being born today. And so this is what he's saying here. And so this is what was important that he send the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And as imperfectly as we do, as we witness and we share Christ with other people and the hopes and the things that we bring, he works through us, through his church and through us as individuals. Now the third reason Jesus said in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What an amazing and great promise that is. So Jesus himself epitomized these words by the way he lived his life in this world. He always put other people's needs ahead of his own. He was going to the cross even to die for our sins, not his own. He came to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of men, in your heart, in my heart, something we never had before. And he came to seek and save the lost, it says in Luke 19.10. And he's commissioned us in the Great Commission to continue the work by grace that he had started. At the same time, he refused the devil's offers to lord it over this world and have control of the kingdoms of this earth. He turned that down flat. He came to lose his life in order that he might gain eternal life and give that to us. He came to establish that eternal life in the kingdom of God for all who believe in him. If you believe in him this morning, then neither some of the gifts that you've been given that have been received by grace. You've received adoption as children of God and his righteousness. Titus 3, 3 through 7 
gives us a great summation of these things. It says that one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That's how we were before we knew Christ. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. This is what's going on as he's beginning to enter Jerusalem. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knew he had to go to that cross and experience the pangs of childbirth to give us new life in him. And Jesus' fourth reason is in verse 26, where he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Notice the word must. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So Jesus was saying that my disciples must know me not only as Savior, but as Lord, or else I'm neither. He's Savior, but he's also Lord. You must follow me, Jesus said. You must. You must keep your eyes focused on obeying the word of God for your own benefit, not just because I would say, you've just got to follow me. You just have to do what I say. It's for your good. It's for your blessing. And Jesus said these words in love because he knew man's heart and how we long for the things of this world. Today, each one of us has a competing desire within us to gain the things of this world versus to gain eternal rewards in heaven. And man, oh man, can those temptations of this world look awfully good. But we've got to know our hearts. We've got to know the difference. We've got to understand which way we're being tempted and which way will bless, bless us and we'll be gaining eternal rewards. You see, when we remain in the word of God, if we continue to obey Jesus, then we're on the well-lit highway to heaven. And it's glorious and it's wonderful and we have to keep our eyes on Jesus to do that. We're following Jesus. This is what this is talking about. Following Jesus. We must follow Jesus because we know where that road ends. That highway to heaven ends in heaven and all the blessings that that will bring. But when we get sidetracked and we begin succumbing to those temptations of this world, it's like we're taking an exit ramp off the highway to heaven into the darkness of this world. And then what happens is we start stumbling around in the darkness and we start hurting ourselves. We start falling all over things that we can't see and we start not only hurting ourselves but hurting each other. We lose sight of Christ and we try to take control. And when we take control, it takes us further into the darkness. But you know what? Jesus says, when you're walking and stumbling around in that darkness, 
If you turn back to me, I'll get you right back onto that highway of heaven. And you can follow me again. But sometimes we have to take these exit ramps in order to learn through experience how much hurt and pain there is when we get off that ramp and into the darkness. And we see the glory of Christ. And we see the way that we should be walking and how we're to interact with one another and loving and caring for each other. Are you following Jesus? Are you down in the darkness if you've taken that exit ramp? Turn back to him and he'll get you back where you need to go. Are you a servant? You really think of yourself that way. Are you his servant? You're not just using Jesus to get what you want. Are you serving him in a way that will advance the kingdom of God, that will bring aid and help, like to meals for Sarah Flood and her family? Or do you not have time for that? Are you praying for the missionaries who are out there trying to advance the kingdom in foreign countries? Or do you not have time for that? Maybe you're more concerned about how you're gonna get an advancement at work Wow, you can get a bigger house. These things are always in competition in our heart. And Jesus knows that. He's not condemning you for that. He's saying, turn to him. Recognize it. And get back on that highway to heaven. And the fifth thing, the fifth reason that Jesus gives us is in verses 27 and 28. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So now Jesus' thoughts are shifting to the agony of the cross, what he's about to face, and bearing the wrath that we deserve. And so Jesus knew Isaiah 53. He knew the scriptures really, really well. And he understood how much of those scriptures were talking about him. And so in Isaiah 53, it says, he was going to be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we would be healed. He knew that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. He knew it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. He knew when his anguished soul made an offering for sin that it would justify many, they would be accounted righteous as he bore their iniquities. Wow. So his soul was deeply troubled. He was in the flesh of man, as he walked this, as he obeyed scriptures, in the flesh of man, he understood what it meant to obey. He understood the cost. In Hebrews 4, it talks about how he, experienced sin, but yet he never sinned. In other words, he went farther than anybody else in this room and what it meant to be tempted and yet refused to give in to the temptation. So he knows more about temptation than any one of us. And of course, it goes right here to the cross. When he could have said, no, I'm not willing to go to this final step. I'm not willing to suffer like this. 
And so in the midst of this, as he's about to have to do it, the hour had come, his soul was deeply troubled because he knew what it would require of him. He understood the magnitude of the suffering that he was about to go through. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying and asking God to help him, crying out for that grace, his soul is in such stress that those of you who are nurses or doctors will understand this, the capillaries in his forehead burst, at least some of them did, to the point where he was sweating blood. That's how much stress that he was going through. And he did it for us. So that's how much he knew and understood what the cost would be to save you and me. And again, let that sink down. How much are you loved and cared for? The son of man was going through this. And then Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. He didn't say glorify my name. He said glorify your name, Father. So even then in this midst of trial and tribulation and sweating blood, glorify your name. I submit to you, Lord, what must, must, must take place. Empower me. I'm ready to offer up my life for you on the cross. I'm ready to suffer your wrath that you will pour out upon me and die for these beautiful children, this joy that I'm seeing as I go through this. My hour has come. And he knows that as he does this, that he in turn will be glorified. He knows that. That's why he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But man, oh man, this is beyond any comprehension thing, thing we have ever experienced. So what we see here is both the Father and the Son are to be glorified. Both. And so that's Jesus' motive. That's his heart desire is that above all else that the Father be glorified because through that, he will be glorified and that we'll become children of God. That joy that's before him. So he died for those people who were casting down the palms and embracing him, coming into Jerusalem, who would betray him. He died for his disciples who would become apostles because they would desert him. What is it like in our lives when we have people like that who hurt us? How do we react to that? It's hard because when you're deeply hurt or damaged by somebody else, your immediate reaction is to be emotionally desiring anger and revenge, isn't it? You want justice and you want it now. I mean, how many movies are out there about getting justice? A lot of them we really enjoy watching. Like, yeah, the good guy gets that you know, revenge and, and the, the bad guy gets what he deserves. And so we see in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The key verses there are great is your reward in heaven. <laughs> but this is going to happen to you. If you're going to really live for Christ, there will come times when these kinds of things will take place. I mean, we're seeing it more and more in the news. Christians are being attacked. Churches are being, you know, desecrated. You see it more and more. The number of people who are Christians or proclaimed to be Christians in this country is the lowest it's ever been. Why is that? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves some hard questions at times. I mean, it's, it's the church that's supposed to be witnessing. It's the church that's supposed to be reaching out and declaring the name of Christ and offering the hope of glory. Are we doing that? See, one of the things that happens, you know, we see new churches being started and these types of things, and this isn't necessarily bad. But far more people are changing churches and starting, you know, joining new churches. And we call that the redeployment of Christian personnel, the RCPs, right? So is the kingdom really growing? Because it should be growing in a healthy church in terms of people who are coming to Christ. There are new conversions taking place because the world is watching and seeing what the church is like and the love that we have for one another. There's nothing wrong with redeployment of Christian personnel. Don't hear that, That's, that can be healthy. But the question is, how many new believers are coming into your church, to our church? Because if we're serious about going out and representing Christ, you're gonna be suffering at one level. Now, we don't want suffering, I'm not saying that. But how are we praying for the lost? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And how much are we just worrying about our own lives and gaining the things of this world on a daily basis? I'm not trying to put you under guilt here. But I'm just saying this, this is a reality and we need to turn to Christ and ask him to help us to be more faithful in these things. Because it feels awkward when people, you know, begin to insult you and laugh at you and reject you because of your walk with Christ. And then the next thing is, are we praying for the lost? Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Whoa. No, I want justice on my enemies, thank you. Pray for your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This was a hard lesson for me to learn. It took me a long time to figure it out. <laughs> But I've had people over the years, elders in churches and other pastors that have done some pretty mean things. And I think all of us have in some way, shape or form. But what I finally figured out was God was singling those people out for me to pray for them. I finally understood 
Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Now, I didn't always want to. I mean, that, I need to make that really clear. At first, I was hurting. And I felt a lot of rejection. And unwarranted, because I really hadn't done anything to really hurt them. But what I found was when I finally obeyed the Lord, as I finally heard what Christ said and obeying his words, as I began to pray for them, God began to restore that relationship and I began to, began to see it time and time again. Not only did my heart change because I became more loving and obedient to the scripture, but I saw them wanting to have a relationship with me. So I don't, I don't have any idea how he does that and changes hearts, but I know when we begin to intercede and pray for those who despitefully use us and want to harm us, that God's at work. There's a spiritual battle that's taking place that we can't see in the heavenlies. And that battle then begins to change hearts and draw people into healing and reconciliation. And so we're not to seek revenge and justice now, but we're, wait, we're to wait on him to bring that when he returns. And man, oh man, is that hard at times, right? So hard. And we, that's why we need each other. So if you've got a relationship in your life that you're having a hard time in terms of right relationships, talk to somebody here in the church and say, look, I'm having a hard time with this. Will you pull alongside me and help me you know, to do the right thing here? How do I obey Matthew 5, 43 through 45? Because I don't want to do that. I'm honest about this. I, re I really don't want to do this. I'd much rather justice happen. That's normal. So this even happens inside the church as well. This is not just the world. And so when we do these things, we glorify Jesus. He becomes our Lord. It's not just the easy stuff, but what about the stuff that makes us want to break out, you know, with our foreheads bleeding? because the stress is there and yet we go through that cross, that mini cross that we have to go through where it brings change and love. We act like Jesus. So what's the chief end of man? The very first thing in our shorter catechism, the number one thing, what's that chief end? Beautiful, beautiful. To glorify God. So this is what we've been talking about. This is how we glorify God. And then the second part is to enjoy him, which a lot of people leave out, enjoy him forever. So there's an amazing blessing and there's an eternal reward that happens when we live like this. And so we need each other to be able to do that. And just a couple of questions. Who are you laying your life down for today? Might be a spouse might be children, might be a neighbor. But as Jesus has laid down his life for you, maybe as somebody comes to mind right now, who are you lay, laying your life down for? Willingly, because you're obeying Christ.
want you to rejoice. Rejoice right now that Jesus glorified God and God glorified him. And in such, you will continue to do that. Rejoice in what he's done for you. Eternal life, child of God, who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, carrying out the wishes of Christ. Rejoice in these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace in our lives. Our, our hope is in you and in you alone. You and Jesus have glorified yourself and you've included us. So we praise you for that and we thank you. We thank you that you continue to grow us in grace. You help us to love one another with a radical love. You help us to love the world even when it persecutes us. Thank you, Lord. To you be the glory. To you be the praise. Amen.